Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 20. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. And our guest today is Chris Shorrock, and he is going to talk about the opioid epidemic and also talk about treatment and specifically treatment with young adults and teenagers as well. Also, I just want to give him a huge shout out. We recorded this once and we had some technical glitches and the recording was unusable and he was willing to come back on and work with me to to fix that issue. So a lot of uh, thanks for his effort to do that, to share his wisdom and knowledge about this issue. So I really appreciate it. So let's go ahead and start the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 20. And my guest today is Christopher Shorrock. And I just want to thank him for coming on to this podcast again for a second time. We had some technical difficulties that we've been working on. And Chris, I really appreciate your patience to, to come on and share your wisdom and knowledge about this very important topic. So Christopher, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. And uh, hey, thanks for the effort on your part as well, Dwayne. Working hard to make sure we really get this interview done finally. So as you said, my name is Chris Schrock. I am a psychologist in private practice in Medicine Hat, Alberta here. All right. So thank you so much for coming on. So we were going to talk today a little bit about, I had reached out to my professional group and I wanted to talk to somebody who has a specialty in understanding opioid addiction and the opioid epidemic. And that's how we kind of connected. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Do you want to kind of just uh, start us off? Sure. Yeah. And, and I responded to you because of course I've got some experience in treating addictive disorders where I've had several different treatment centers I've been working with throughout becoming a registered psychologist. 
And before that, while doing, still doing my master's in counseling psychology, I actually worked at a methadone maintenance treatment program in Ontario. So I got some really extensive first-hand experience of seeing opioid addiction specifically through that. Okay, great. So let's kind of just to start right off, let's talk about opioid abuse. What What is an opioid compared to other drugs like alcohol or marijuana or cocaine or anything like that? Let's just kind of define what that is first. Sure. So there is that significant kind of difference there with how opioids affect the brain, the body. They're known really as painkillers, that they are very effective at treating very intense pain, which usually we're looking at physical pain, things such as going in for surgeries and resetting broken bones of various different opioids are available to really help with that, doing that successfully and effectively, Okay, um, which is different, of course, from cocaine, marijuana, alcohol, tobacco, all these other wonderful drugs we found. Nothing doesn't really seem to compare in terms of how effective they can be at masking, at lowering an experience of pain. Okay, so how, when someone is using this uh, as an, for an addiction to deal with, I guess, emotional pain, how does that kind of work? And you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that, Dwayne. Again, if you end up taking an opioid, you know, you're on a prescription of, let's say, morphine, T3s, uh, Oxycontin, because of a broken leg. Taking these pills, of course, does not heal your leg by any means. It does help you experience less horrible physical pain. And it works very much the same with emotional pain. There's probably something there that needs our attention that should be dealt with. And opioids will mask that, will numb a person to their feelings so they don't feel it as much. But that by no means is saying that it's being treated or fixed in any way. So when someone like takes these drugs, like what I've seen a lot in, in my practice is that for some people, they've come in, they got into a car accident or some kind of physical accident, and they start taking some of these drugs, and it definitely does help them with the pain, it helps them function. But then they, something happens where they cross over into this, the pain is no, like, you know, the broken leg is now healed or the, the hurt back is now healed or it's less, and yet they continue to want to use the, these opioids and they've kind of become addicted to it. And you know what? This exact situation has been baffling and puzzling to a ton of us practitioners, let alone your average Jane or Joe out there, where it, it does seem so confusing where it moves. And I'm so grateful for some of the cutting edge research and realizations we've had of things like epigenetics, where it really is the turning on of certain addicted kind of genes, where suddenly what started as the use of a drug moves through the abuse into dependence and addiction and is very hard to come back from, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I've seen that personally in, in some clients that I've worked with where this before they were leaving, living a very kind of, you know, normal life and mm-hmm. they get into this drug use and then they're moving into like doctor shopping or, or now going to multiple doctors to kind of get their fix and they keep taking more and more and more and it can get pretty bad. Mm, absolutely. And for a lot of us, you know, I'll admit my own 
bias that has been there for decades as well. You know, we think of opioid addiction, we think of heroin, we think of morphine, we think of quote unquote junkies on the street that are homeless, that are disheveled. We very much fail to appreciate addiction does not discriminate. And there are people of every socioeconomic status, race, creed, religion. There are a ton of people that are dealing with addictive disorders with opioids throughout the whole economic classes. It just looks very different. Right. So for for a lot of people, even though, yeah, you get that stereotypical idea of an addict, a lot of these people coming in don't look like that at all. Exactly right, Dwayne. They can be from very well-off families, have a lot of money. And quite honestly, in my experience, that can make the issue so much more difficult to treat because there's more denial built up or there's a family name to protect, which again, leads to a lot of denial, rejection of treatment and inability to see just how bad things have gotten until there really is a breakdown. So that gets me kind of to the next point, because really what we're seeing in in the news a lot, I think a lot of people are seeing this opioid epidemic, they're, they're calling it an epidemic, that this is a big problem. Yeah, absolutely right, Wayne. And epidemic is precisely the right word. It is becoming so widespread. Uh, and the biggest difference that we're seeing, of course, is it's hitting the news because we have a lot more people dropping dead today than there have been in the past. Okay, so it's that's starting to to highlight it even more is the number of deaths. So let's kind of talk a little bit of like why why now? Like why all of a sudden is this is the op- opioid epidemic like kind of taking off? I should say if it's like huge. Yeah, and it's I mean of course that's a very complex question with a lot of layers to answer, Dwayne. For my part of it, I see some major factors as. One of them is how great we've gotten at refining and at producing chemicals, such as fentanyl, which again is a a fully synthetic compound, which means it's not using parts of the opium poppy and plant anymore. We're looking at the chemical structures of these natural occurring drugs and making them even more powerful and more refined down, which can be a great thing in terms of pain management, but can also become very, very dangerous when used by someone at a party, inexperienced, trying to figure out dosing or things like that, that's where you get these accidental deaths, sometimes with someone that has not had a long history of using these drugs. Right. So, okay. So some of these drugs, like fentanyl, it's it's manufactured. We're making it basically so well that it hits the brain in the exact spot it needs to that almost, I guess, is... Could almost anyone become addicted to it? I mean, are these drugs so powerful that if someone uses them, they're going to become addicted? Or is this where that epigenetics comes in and and some people will, some people won't? And Uh, Yeah, I'm really glad, again, you bring up the epigenetics because that, again, has been such a confusing factor for a lot of us. And uh, again, I admit my own bias. I used to think, oh, yeah, you've got to come from a pretty rough background. You have to have a very extensive trauma history to be at risk for addiction. But now I know, of course, no, that is not the case. There are those of us throughout the entire population, everybody, you might or might not have some of these addictive genes and they might or might not be turned on, so to speak, by even just a, a small number of traumas or even what might look like a mild traumatic experience from the outside might be enough to push that boundary for someone. 
Right. So uh, kind of hear what I hear you saying is like for somebody, they may just kind of have the right biology that if they get exposure to this drug, it kind of turns on that addictive process for them. And if they had never gotten exposure to it, they may not. And then, of course, there are some people that will be exposed, but they just don't become an addict due to the same same thing. It doesn't get turned on. Exactly, which just looks so confusing when you see some people able to drink alcohol and live very productive, healthy, quote-unquote, normal lives. They can still go to work and keep a job and take care of their kids versus somebody else can end up with a horrible issue of alcoholism and they can't control drinking. And it's some of that same idea. And it goes beyond even chemicals to complicate things further into, of course, the process addictions. We're starting to see more of, understand better issues of pornography, sex, gambling, shopping, these things as well. Kind of all playing into that same same system. And once that system gets turned on, then that addictive process starts to kind of take over. Of course, yeah. And, and some of the research I'm doing right now, which I am nowhere near complete, but I'm actually looking at why social, politically, especially here in the West, Canada and the United States, we have what seems to be a much higher rate of addiction disorders compared to, let's say, third world countries where they're, I mean, from the outside, it looks like there could be so much more trauma with war and political instability. But there is something about our countries, us over here in the West, so to speak, that uh, there is a certain level of stress and trauma, even as part of this. Right. Oh, that would be that would be very interesting to understand and kind of understand that element. So this is this is a an addiction we're seeing more in Western culture than some of the other cultures in the world. Is this opioid epidemic? Definitely. And it's not just Canada and the US. And again, my, my research is very early on. There are some other countries, you look at uh, Britain and other places in Europe where there's definitely prevalence of these things. We're not the first to invent it or use it. But again, just the general rates of addiction seem disproportionate, surprisingly, between okay. first versus third world countries. Okay. What about like when, when we're looking at like this, also asking the question, some of these newer drugs are, are coming out, I guess. And what about these being prescribed more often? I mean, I've heard that in the news that the addictive properties of these drugs were under underreported. Is that accurate? And, and that this well, also contributed to this issue as well, that they were overprescribed. I don't, I don't you know. Yeah, and that, I mean, that was a huge issue, which went before the courts even when you're looking at the issue of Oxycontin, which is why we now have a formulation of it, of Oxyneo. You know, they've changed it to try and become tamper resistant, to try and make it so you cannot take the old pills like you could with Oxycontin and crush them up and either inject them or cook them and smoke them or snort them or even chewing them as opposed to just swallowing them whole like they are prescribed, like they're meant to be, the drug is so powerful that even changing the mode of ingestion suddenly made it like it was a whole different drug. So that was a huge and painful lesson. And there's lots of allegations that the pharmaceutical company responsible knew about how addictive this drug is and pushed it nonetheless as a safe alternative, as very lowly addictive, so to speak, onto well-meaning doctors who then prescribed it because it is incredibly effective at 
resolution of pain, but incredibly dangerous after all. Right. And I, also, one, one of the things that inspired me to, to talk about this topic was I was reading the news and there was a recent death of, of two young, young male adults who were just houses down from each other and they OD'd on this drug. And, and I'm really thinking about like, how are these young adults finding this medication or, or using it? It seems to be, that seems to be a, a huge issue as well as these young kids are finding this, I guess, in the medicine cabinet. Well, yeah, and you, you hit the nail on the head again, Dwayne, that it's the fact that there are more of these drugs, these painkillers, these opiates available. There's more in people's houses. They are more readily prescribed. So the access is there, which can be an incredibly dangerous thing. With young people, again, there was a bit of this trend of farm parties where everybody shows up and there's a big bowl in the middle of the coffee table. Everyone's throwing in various different pills for different effects, which now we look at and we say, holy geez, that is very scary. Right, right, definitely. And then, yeah, and, and you, you don't know what you're getting. And these poor kids are exposed to this. And I would imagine, too, young kids, when you're in that age, there's already a lot of emotional distress when you're when you're growing up and you're 16 through 20 and you're trying to figure out life, that these drugs really probably really feel good. You know, really like take a lot of that away really quickly and you can take all that, that angst away. And then, but sure, you know, they start to, they start to fall in that addiction. And then, and then what I, I've also found is that they, they move from that because then it's hard to get those prescription drugs. They move to other drugs like heroin or, because they can get it cheaper. Yeah, which seems so counterintuitive, but it can be the case, absolutely. And, and you're right when you mentioned, Dwayne, that, I mean, teenage years, of course, are such a moment of turmoil for lots of us, that there's way higher uh, thrill-seeking and risk-taking. And some of that can be, believe it or not, a very good thing. Hopefully that's when adolescents are learning who the heck they are and what they can and they can't do. And figuring out how they're going to build the rest of their life around themselves, really. But with that, of course, comes a lot of risk as well. Right. And then explain a little bit of the tolerance effect of opioids, because isn't that also an issue? Is As you take an opioid, you need to take more and more to have the same effect or, or maintain that kind of high or equilibrium, I guess. And yeah, that's uh, pretty much word for word. That's the definition of it right there is that taking even the same amount over a prolonged amount of time will start to have less and less of an effect, which this can become a significant issue even in regimented regular opioid prescriptions when there's issues like pain. You know, and one of the most complicated cases we would ever see at the methadone clinic when I worked there would be when you have an individual that has an addictive disorder and they've got a problem of chronic pain disorder on top of that, you know, which are both very significant things. They're both very real disorders. And you have to try and treat both of those, which can be an absolute nightmare. Well, that would, sound, that would be really, really hard to do. How do you help them not live in pain and at the same time deal with the addictive process in the background? Well, that would sound that's like... exactly it. Yeah. And, so, and for a lot of people, you have to pretty much say, okay, well, it might not be the case that you can live with zero pain, but let's try and keep you at a place where the pain is manageable. Let's look at what other options are available to you for treatment of pain. 
and at the same time try and get your life back away from this addiction that it's been. Right. And then, so what, so let's talk a little bit about treatment then. What are some of the treatment options for opioid addiction? So again, like I've said, one of the really, oh, it's a really old one that seems to make sense is saying, okay, take all of the various opioids you're using, all of the street heroin or what you think is Oxycontin or Percocets or various mixed drugs or whatnot, trade them all in, come into a clinic and get a monitored, measured, regular dose of methadone being a very long acting, again, partially made drug that will fill all those receptors. They can control the withdrawal symptoms. It can control a huge amount of perceived pain. And my experience of it, Dwayne, was that it gives the person the opportunity, the chance to say, okay, well, all my withdrawal and symptoms are controlled. I now have the option to either go to work, do some therapy for myself, get my life back in order. And if I can do that, I can even go as far as looking at tapering down and getting rid of even the methadone. Okay. Okay. So that's one way to, to, to treat that. If, if they don't have the methadone, the withdrawal is so powerful that they can't function or they can't, they can't work, they can't do anything. And the methadone, kinda, it kind of eases that out. Is that, would that be right? Yeah. That's the biggest kind of benefit to it. And way back a good, oh geez, 15, 20 years ago, I would explain to a lot of the new clients coming in saying, look, you are trading a big, ugly, terrible ball and chain for a smaller, better, different ball and chain. That methadone, again, is going to be something they are physically dependent on. They'll need to get their dose at about the same time every day. There is a lot, some red tape for it, and there's some requirements on the person if they're going to be on the methadone program. It's not an easy fix. It's not quick. If you're looking at any kind of a, a long-term, really sobriety in every other way. Right. So that's one option. What are, what are some other options that they have out there? Are there other drugs that, uh, that work as well with treating opioid addiction? So in terms of specifically opiates, the only other drug that really has an effect, like I mentioned earlier, is naltrexone, which will actually kick opiates out of the brain. It can put people into a withdrawal, what's called precipitated withdrawal symptoms. And believe it or not, this is actually part of the newer drugs that are used. It's usually a combination of something like buprenorphine with naltrexone, which we now have as suboxone. Again, an alternative to methadone, but another maintenance therapy where you're getting a drug. The other option, of course, if somebody can go through the full withdrawal symptoms is abstinence. You know, that is an option. Withdrawal symptoms from opiates probably are not fatal. It feels like it to the addict when they're looking at that withdrawal symptom coming on. But you can survive a withdrawal from it. But just doing that, just quote unquote drying out is never enough. And the person will always return to that addiction if they aren't working on where that addiction comes from, the underlying issues that have turned those genes on. Right. So that, that's where all that recovery maintenance comes in, where a person really, especially some, when it's some of these addictions that are, are really tough, they need that kind of recovery lifestyle to kind of constantly help them move forward. So like therapy, group work, 12-step work, or other alternative support groups, kind of incorporating that into their life so that they're constantly 
almost like in a secure environment because it seems like when they start to have pain, the body wants to go to this drug. Absolutely. And, it, and it's not just pain. It's you know, when they have boredom, when they have sadness, when they have frustration, basically any uncomfortable emotion, any physical discomfort. Yeah, the brain is so wired to think, I know what will fix this right now. I know what will take this away right away. Right. And then at that point, it's almost like now your brain is hijacked and it, it's going to go find this drug and, and find a way to get it. Absolutely. And that's one of the things for me that makes working in this field so exciting is that, gosh, talk about pulling for the underdog because there's so much probability of relapse. There's so many odds stacked against you in addictions, but it is absolutely wonderful when you get to see someone come out through the other side and start to rebuild their lives from themselves, which absolutely does happen. Yes, and I see that too. And I, I think we really need to let everybody know that that there's so much help out there and getting that help and just investing in that help that there's that real, real strong possibility of getting better. And I've been able to to work in this field and, and have the uh, blessing to be able to see when people do that. It, it is really amazing because they're mm. really overcoming such sometimes really difficult situations that they're in and and this addiction can be tough. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and again, my heart has always had that little bit of a special place for anyone dealing with opiates or opioids, just seeing how incredibly entrenched the addiction can be with the physical aspect, especially on top of all the other usual addiction issues that are there. Right. So we had talked earlier in the other podcast well, in the other one, we made that attempt to, to record, but we had all the technical errors. You know, we were talking specifically, what I found really interesting, you were talking about younger adults or teens who have kind of got caught up in this and getting and how you help them maybe a little bit different than how you would help an adult. And I thought if you could elaborate on that, it'd be very helpful. For sure. Yeah. And and full disclosure, it feels necessary to say, geez, I was working at the outdoor treatment program in, oh, I think 2007 to 2008. So already, oh my gosh, it's been a whole 10 years. It feels like just yesterday because it was such a profound experience. And it really was living out in the woods with these teenagers, these young adults, cooking our meals over a fire and hiking up and down our hills to our campsites. And it wasn't, 50 minutes of therapy once a week. And I'm not saying that that can't work with young adults, but what I saw and what I've found is that you need to have that relationship first with any kind of a teenager, young adult, if you even want a chance at doing some significant kind of therapy. Right. You had said earlier too, like bonding through experience, shared experience. And I thought that was so telling, especially working with these young kids is that they, that's how they're going to bond. Is They're not going to do that talk therapy that might be effective for an adult with a kid or younger adult or teenager. That shared experience is how they can bond to something different, I guess. Yeah, absolutely right, Dwayne. You know, it really was through, it's not always even the good stuff. It's, it's usually through the tribulations of saying, oh, geez, now it is pouring rain and we somehow got to make fire. How the heck are we going to do this, guys? You know, problem solving together and really just putting in the time. such a factor. I have not found any better way than that of getting someone's trust 
because I used to think, okay, it's it's the insights, you know, when we're adults, then we can really look at ourselves and figure things out. I found some of these teenagers to be incredibly insightful, but there was no way they were telling me about those deep, dark thoughts and feelings and, and what was going on until they knew I was going to be there, I was going to show up, and I was reliable and safe, you know, and that took time and experience together. Wow, that that's amazing. What what an opportunity to to be able to work with those those kids and to get them get them help and and to help them get their life going in a direction that's going to be fulfilling for them. I guess that's why we do this work, right? I mean, it's it's amazing to be able to see that. Yeah, absolutely. part of it. So, what would if if there was anything else that you'd want to say or tell anybody else out there, any of the listeners about this? What would you want to tell them about this? So I think the biggest thing would be to absolutely anyone dealing with any kind of addictions or friends, family of, if you've been worried about somebody, it it is to come out from the shadows. It is to ask for help. Uh, like you mentioned, Dwayne, there is fantastic help out here. There's all different kinds. You need to just make some effort and figure out what's going to work for you, what you think. And you might try one route and it might not work. That doesn't mean give up. That means try something different all the way through it could be as intensive as methadone maintenance therapy or an outdoor treatment program or 12 steps. Again, there's various different kinds of treatment. I'd say try anything, try everything because you can get a lot of freedom back and get your life back and still live the life you want to. Yeah, definitely. I would say the same thing. Reach out for help. And and I think all of this is like we'd also talked about is that getting addiction out of the realm of that shame or personal failure. A lot of this is, is about biology. It, it's not about willpower or weak mind or weakness. It, it, it's, it, this, is, this is a lot of this is going on is in the body out of our conscious control. Yeah, absolutely right. And so it's like that shame that keeps people from getting help. It's like, oh man, just reach out and, and call Call somebody, call a treatment center. If they don't work, call another one. Don't don't give up. Absolutely. And and the only extra thing I would add as well is, God forbid, if you are that family member, you've got a son or a daughter, someone struggling with addiction, as important as it is for you to make it a priority to help them get that help, you probably need it for yourself as well because there's no way that having someone you love, someone that you care so much about, suffer and struggle with addiction, that takes a toll on any of us. And some of the best ways to get through teenagers is to show them how. And that means if you're not doing your work, you can't really expect they're going to do theirs. Oh, that's a very good point. Very, very good point. Very well said. So is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Really just so much thanks to you, Dwayne, for trying. Uh, you know, it took us two, three tries here, but I'm hoping we've got all the technology failures down and got a great <laughs> interview out of this. And I have really enjoyed talking to you and it's wonderful to just to converse with someone else that has the same passion and uh, in the same field as me. It's great. Oh, thank you so much. So if anybody is trying to get a hold of you or wants more information, how, how, can, they, how can they contact you? So... Uh, really important is that they have to be living in the province of Alberta. I am uh, restricted by my registration to the province I'm in, but if they're looking for help or suggestions, advice, even I can give that to anybody. The best bet 
is to go through my email address. Just get in a hold of me with Chris, C-H-R-A-S, at cscounselingservices.com. Counseling with two L's, services with an S. All right. Awesome. Great. And I'll, I'm going to have that in the show notes as well. So you guys can go to theaddictedmind.com forward slash 20. And I'll, I'll link all that information as well so people can find it and contact you if they want to, if they have any more questions. But I just, once again, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you, Dwayne. And thank you so much for the time today as well. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast today. I want to dedicate this episode to two young men who lost their lives to opioid addiction. I was uh, just reading the news and saw a story of Dustin Manning and Justin Abraham, who both struggled with opioid addiction and lived just blocks apart and died within hours of each other separately due to opioid overdose. And I just want to dedicate this episode to them and their family and that they may find hope and healing in this tragedy. And so this episode is for them and I hope this information helps others out there. So I really appreciate it a lot and um, I appreciate all of you listening. Take care and with that, I will see you next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.